today we're actually starting a new series on 1 John. I'm going to put a slide up on the screen a little bit later that will have the passage of Scripture so you can follow along with us. Um, I think that 1 John is a great uh, passage for us to look at after Easter. If you were with us last Sunday, um, we spent the, the day kind of looking at what does the empty tomb mean for our lives? The fact that when the disciples showed up and, and expected to see Jesus the third day, the tomb was empty. There was nobody there. And what does that meaning uh, have for us in our lives today? And uh, just reflecting back real quick before I jump into 1 John, um, I think last week was an awesome experience for our church. It was the first time that we ever tried to do two services, and uh, we managed to actually pull it off despite some, some uh, road or speed bumps here and there. Um, and the reason I think it's awesome is because we had almost everybody who calls Maricopa Springs their home church serve in some way. And uh, that is huge. I think one of the indicators of whether a church is, is growing and vibrant is whether people feel a call to step up and get involved and do something. So I don't usually do this kind of thing, but I, I, I want you guys to give yourselves a round of applause. And, and, of course, the glory goes to God because he's moving in people's lives and inviting them to, to take action and to be a part of what's going on around here. So go ahead, shamelessly. Thank you. Thank you. Seriously, I'm, I'm grateful for a church filled with people who feel uh, like they want to serve like Jesus served. You know, basically one of the last things that he said to his disciples was he took up a towel and he washed their nasty feet. And he said, if you want to come after me, it's not about greatness, it's about servanthood. So thank you guys for doing that. Um, let me pray for us one more time before I jump into uh, 1 John. God, I thank you for a morning to come and to celebrate you, to worship you, to seek you. Um, Lord, I, I truly wish that uh, every morning would be an opportunity for us to gather like this in community and praise you and, uh, and seek your face and understand your word. Uh, but we thank you for one day a week, Lord, where we get to come together and just praise you and be together. And I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you'd speak to us from 1 John. I pray that uh, you would make me and even our worship team transparent, that as people are here, who they would see would be you, Lord. And it's in your name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, so the tomb, last week, you know, the, the message of that story is Jesus came, he walked among us, he died, he rose from the dead so that we could experience life and not emptiness. That was the idea behind the empty tomb. Um, and, and you... You know, we, where we wrapped up last week is you, you begin that process of feeling fullness by surrendering your life first and foremost to Jesus, letting him fill you up. But in order to remain full, there's a process that has to take place. There's some action that we have to engage in. See, I think a lot of people uh, think that the Christian faith is about a single moment where you pray a prayer, and, and, and at that moment you cross this finish line and you're done. And that's not the case at all. That's the starting line when you give your life to Christ. And so it would be amiss for us to, to take the week after Easter and not talk about what does action in our faith look like so that we grow, so that we can fill ourselves with Christ and not feel emptiness. And, and what it comes down to is Jesus dwells in us. He offers us eternal life, freedom from emptiness. But we're still sinful and we're broken. We have a sinful human nature. And so there's a process, there's, there's action that has to take place on our part. We have this constant responsibility to God and to ourselves to continu continually fill ourselves with the things of God. 
to press on in our pursuit of him. Or we're going to find ourselves suffering from that emptiness again. If you guys remember Jesse's video from last week. You know, he had this moment where he understood the gospel and he gave his life to Jesus, but became distracted by other things and ultimately found himself in that empty place again. And it was in that moment that he realized he's got to continue to pursue God in his life. For me personally, I've got a a sort of similar story to Jesse, obviously different in many ways, but I spent almost three years in college suffering from clinical depression, medication, therapy, and some pretty extreme isolation. You know, I'm 21, 20 years old. My friends are all going out on Friday nights having fun, and I'm sitting in my room, like, reading The Count of Money Christo, you know. Um, I was just messed up in the head because I was suffering from depression. I was a Christian, but I had those feelings of emptiness because I wasn't pursuing God. It wasn't a a passion of mine. It wasn't, uh, you know, at the center of what my life was about. And I didn't have that fullness of life that so many other people who who follow Jesus do. I had this shred of faith still, and I'm glad that God gave me that at least to sustain me through that. But I had very little power in my life from that shred of faith. It was more just kind of this empty feeling, this serious lack of action. So I think First John's a wonderful place for us to turn in our Bibles this morning after Easter, because... I think John offers us a few tips on fullness of life. And uh, so I want us to look through the first couple verses of John this morning and see what we can find there. Jesse, will you throw it up on the screen for us? And I like the ESV translation, so if you brought your own Bible, uh, you know, you can read along there or you can join us and just follow along with what's up on the screen. But let me read this for us. This is verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Um, I don't know about you guys, but there's just something about reading scripture that grips me. I I really do enjoy it. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor and I have to. Um, uh, Let's start with verse four. I actually want to start there before we look at the first three verses. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, John was not a schizophrenic, okay? When he says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete, He's using the word are, not because he has multiple personality disorder, but because he is including us in that sentence, our joy. He's saying, I'm writing you these things so that those of you who read this can join with me and be a part of this are who has fullness, complete joy in the fullness of life that he learned to have through Christ. And if that's the case, then what he has to say as he writes this book of 1 John, actually it was a letter, it's got to be some pretty powerful stuff, wouldn't you think? Some wisdom, some application for our lives that ultimately will produce joy in us if we learn to live within it and apply it. Now, I think truth be told, there's tons of people out there who call themselves Christians but have a relatively meaningless faith because they don't see the value of Scripture. Let me say that one more time. I think there's a lot of us out there 
who call ourselves Christians, but we're living this meaningless Christian life because we don't see the value of Scripture. I'm talking about Christians suffering from emptiness, a lack of joy, because they spend so little time reading and studying their Bibles and learning about what God has to say about life, eternity, truth, and grace. And, and it's not a requirement, but we're missing out when we don't engage in Scripture. I've said this before, but this blows my mind, okay? Our God is the God of the endless universe. As far as science understands, our universe, for all practical purposes, is immeasurable, okay? They've charted light from this direction and that direction, and they know that it goes at least 5 billion light years in either direction, okay? So if we're narcissistic enough to think that we're at the center then it's 10 billion light years across, and that's only as far as the light has come thus far. For all they know, it could be infinitely further beyond that, and we will never, ever see the distance that the universe spans. Our God created humans with brains so complex and beautiful that even with all of our scientific understanding, right, we can create incredible machines. They say now that the Internet is, uh, you know, with, the, with these myriad of servers and computers, is now approaching the complexity of the human brain. And yet, and, and that's globally, okay? So globally, we're just barely getting there. And yet, scientists don't have the faintest idea why humans have the capacity to think. Machines don't do that, but we do. We worship a God who created relationships, memories, longing, feelings, emotions, he created sunsets and love and millions of species of plants and animals. He created the labyrinth that is our hearts and our minds. And all of these things, in a tiny, tiny, tiny way, reflect who he is as God in his endless majesty and splendor. Just a sliver of it. And then he gave us this tiny, tiny little book to guide us through this life. And think of all the possibilities that he could have put in here. A, a, an entire library of Congress full of content that would have just scratched the surface of what his mind knows. Overwhelming. And just we would have been just depressed at the amount of knowledge that we could never, ever learn in this life if he had done it that way. But we could have had the opportunity to read and comprehend it. And yet he didn't do that. He gave us this tiny little book. And granted, this is some small print. But even larger print, it's really not that big. I mean, in his kindness, instead of giving us this encyclopedia of information and rules that we should follow, he gave us the cliff notes, the abridged version, just filled with the meaty stuff, the really important stuff that we need to know and apply to our lives. Isn't that incredible? It really is incredible. And yet, how often... Do we hardly even engage with just this bit of wisdom that he gave us? Again, sadly, a whole lot of us who call ourselves Christians and we worship God, we neglect this super short book that was written for our benefit. That was written, like John says, so that our joy may be complete. So I want to look at some of these things that John writes, and I want us to pursue joy together this morning. I want us to pursue joy. Verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. John starts with what I think is just a powerful reminder in the midst of our skeptical age. 
we live in a doubting society. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I think it's led to a lot of good, actually. But we've been raised under this banner of empiricism in a society that calls a key part of its history the Enlightenment. And if you know anything about human history, the Enlightenment was this historical period where ration gave way to great scientific advancement. When the Western world learned that hard evidence is required to call anything truth or a fact. That's what the Enlightenment brought to the world. And it was a great moment. It was a great moment. And John, being way ahead of his time when he writes this, tells his readers at the start of his book of encouragement and wisdom that his wisdom comes from Jesus, from the word of life, and that most importantly, he personally saw, heard, and touched the risen Lord Jesus. First and foremost, he wants you to know there's no reason to doubt or be afraid because I saw, I heard, I've looked upon and touched with my own hands the Christ who is our God. He empirically observed it, and everything that he's going to say is true, he did indeed observe. Isn't that incredible? You know, in our society, we really do put a lot of faith in third-party stories and witnesses, don't we? As much as we think that we have this real uh, uh, love for and commitment to truth and rationality and empirical evidence, how many times have you had a situation like this? Maybe, maybe it was you or maybe somebody else. You found yourself, about, uh, you found yourself bragging about knowing somebody who knows somebody, Right? I know a guy who's friends with Tom Hanks. I know a guy who met Barack Obama, right? You say something like that in a conversation, and you expect people to think that you're pretty cool because you know somebody who knows somebody. Right? You have a third-party connection to somebody who's significant, important, famous, wealth, whatever it may be. And it's sort of silly, but we take that as, as you know, legitimate, right? And here's John telling us that we don't need to doubt our faith or belief in Jesus, we know a guy who knows Jesus. John's saying, I know him. I walked with him. I talked with him. I touched him. I observed his resurrection. I was there. And if you know Jesus personally yourself, then you know that John's words are indeed true because you felt the touch of Christ in your own life. You know what that's like, but you don't need to doubt. John was a witness and he writes these things so that we can have faith that what we believe about Christ is true. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of doubt here and there. You know, some of the things that Christianity claims are, are difficult to believe. I've never observed angels. I don't know what heaven is like. I have uh, ideas from what scripture tells me. A little bit of doubt here and there is acceptable. That's okay. That's to be understood. It's expected, especially when life throws some crazy curveballs at you. But I, I can assure you this morning that if your mind and your heart are plagued with doubts about Christ, then you're going to have an incredibly difficult time experiencing the joy that John talks about. You just can't do it. You're going to question God's goodness and faithfulness, and joy is going to elude you if you can't come to believe, even from John's witness, that Christ is true, and especially in difficulty when you need it most. So he writes this reminder to us. He saw, heard, touched Jesus so that we can have confidence that what we believe in God and his goodness is true. It was proved. 
through the person of Christ. And John saw it. He was there. And I think confidence in our faith brings great joy. It does. And, and again, if you're a Christian doubter, there's no shame. But read scripture. Listen to the testimony of those who are present. And grow in your faith so you can grow in joy. That's what scripture is about. Verse 2 then, he says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The life that he's talking about that was made manifest is Jesus. If you look at the Gospel of John, which is a different book than 1 John, verse 4, chapter 1, says in reference to Jesus, In him was life, and this life was the light of men. And, and I think in this passage specifically, this word manifest, it has deep theological implications for it. I love this word choice, especially with this translation. Some other uh, translations use the word appeared. But I think manifest uh, communicates the idea better. What he's reminding us of is that Jesus was with the Father from the very beginning. Again, if you read the book of John, the Gospel of John, he talks about that very idea. He, he says very similar things saying that Jesus was with the Father from the beginning. That when he was born to Mary, he was manifest, not created. And that's a significant theological point right there, okay? One of the major differences between Christianity and so many other religions is that we believe that Jesus is God. Islam, they believe he was a great prophet. Jews, they believe that, well, that he was a failed Messiah, an attempted uh, Messiah. Uh, Mormons, they believe that he was a God. They don't believe he was God himself, etc., etc., etc. Not a God. We don't believe that Jesus was a God. He wasn't born from God. We believe that Jesus is and always has been God. He was manifest when he came to earth. And I can't think of a cooler way for God to give direction to his creation than to become one of them, to step into their shoes and to walk a mile in their shoes, as it said. He didn't just give us a book that told us, tells us how to live our lives. He came and he did it and he showed us how it works. And there's a lot of false gods out there for you to choose from. But there's only one God who manifested himself, who appeared not just in visions and dreams and prophecies, but who revealed himself through his very creation. Isn't that incredible? It's uniquely Christian. There's no other religion that makes a claim like that. He's always been there from the beginning. And in Jesus, he displayed himself with proof and evidence. And John uses this word manifest two times. Okay, The first time to tell us that God appeared on the scene in human history, and the second time to remind us that God appears in our lives. And this is significant. John's an intelligent dude. I don't think that he is being redundant here. I don't think he's uh, just accidentally repeating himself. He, he intentionally uses this word twice. The first time, the life was made manifest. The second time, was made manifest to us. And I think the second phrase when he uses it is to show us that there's a personal revelation. Jesus manifests himself to us. In other words... I think John's, again, reminding us where joy comes from. That when you give your life to Jesus, he manifests himself in you. He makes himself known. 
we use the phrase sometimes that he lives in your heart. I remember being a little kid thinking that was weird, that maybe there was actually a little door to my heart and Jesus was in there. But he lives in our hearts. He comes and he dwells inside of your soul. And for those of us who've turned our backs on an empty tomb to pursue a risen Lord, God is alive and living in us as the source of our joy. Consider that fact for a second. This same God who stretched out the universe five billion light years in either direction, at least, lives in us. This God who had power over death is alive and dwelling in you, in your life, your actions, your thoughts, your prayers, your hearts, your mind, your ambitions, your dreams, in your relationships and your feelings. God is manifest in your life in all of those ways if you have surrendered your life to him. And all of that to say, joy is accessible to us in this life because God, who's the source of all joy, is daily revealing himself to us in our lives. He manifests himself in us, his children. And I think we should pray to that end. You know, if you're sitting here, maybe you were even here last week, and you were like, yeah, yeah, great, emptiness, I feel that. And surrendering my life to Jesus, you know, yeah, that sounds like a good way, but, but then what? You know, my encouragement to you is pray to that end. Pray that God would manifest himself in your life. I remember reading a, a, a passage about an Old Testament prophet who was being given the reins of his predecessor, Elisha and Elijah. And, and as he's given over the authority to be the next prophet of God, one of the things he prays is for a double portion of God's spirit. Isn't that a great prayer? For a double portion of God's spirit. And maybe you sit here this morning and you're like, yeah, joy sounds great, but how? Maybe you need to pray for God to be manifest in your life. And maybe you need to be courageous enough to pray for a double portion of his spirit. It's kind of a scary prayer, but go for it. See what happens. Let me conclude with verse 3. And since we've already talked about verse 4, uh, I want you, I'm going to end here, but I want you to notice as I read this, that for the third time now, John's going to tell us that he heard and saw Jesus, right? I just told you a few minutes ago that John uh, doesn't repeat himself because he's ignorant. He's intentional. This isn't redundancy without a point here. So let me say this. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Personally, if there's one thing that you walk away with this morning from my message, it would be the implications of this verse. Tons of people go to Easter on, or go to church on Easter Sunday. And that's it. It's a flash in the pan. Maybe they even say that they're Christians and they believe in Jesus. And I wish that those people were here with us this morning as I said this to you guys. Too many people, I think, have a commitment to Jesus without having a commitment to his bride, the church. I remember not too long ago, I read a book that said they like Jesus, but not the church. And it was all about how especially my generation, but more and more our culture, thinks that Jesus was a great guy. They love his teaching, his philosophy. They even like his religion. But they don't want anything to do with his church. How unfortunate is that? The implications of this verse, I think, are you cannot have fellowship with God without having fellowship with other believers through the church. 
I'm going to courageously say that. It may sound strong. I'm not advocating a works righteousness. I'm not saying that you have to surrender your life to Jesus and go to church to be saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel is confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. It's by grace, through faith in Christ alone. But the truth is that Jesus died to redeem us, and he died to redeem his bride, the church, his people, us as a corporate entity together. And I understand that the church has a bad rap these days. I get it. I I can commiserate with those who have that feeling. But what organization that's run by humans doesn't? Have you guys ever been on the Internet and seen the comments that people leave about every company out there? You're always going to find somebody who hates on a company or hates on an idea. There's always going to be a dissenter. Every single thing that's run by humans is going to get screwed up at some point because every one of us is screwed up. It'd be absurd for us to think that messed up people are going to run a perfect organization, even if it is ultimately divinely led by God himself. And I'm so tired of hearing people claim that they're Christians loving on Jesus but hating on his church. You can't do that. It's his bride. And I'm not saying that our church, Maricopa Springs, I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about the church, the global church. Any organization that claims to follow and pursue Christ for his glory. And it's just a cop-out when people say that. It's a cop-out. If you call yourself a Christian and you've got a problem with the church, don't bail and say that it's screwed up. It's stupid anyway. Use your God-given gifts and talents to do something about it change it. Maybe it's our church. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, man, I wish this church had this or that, or I wish they did this differently. Bring it on, please. Let us know. We might ask you to lead it, but (laughs) let us know. If it's some other church, go for it. And I'm not saying, I'm, well, let me get back to what John says. John says that he proclaims the truth about Christ so that we can have fellowship with him with John, so we can have fellowship with John, with other believers, so that we can be in community and unity with other believers who are pursuing Jesus. And through that community, we find fellowship and community with God itself. And the church, even with all of its flaws, is beautiful and precious. It's beautiful. It's precious. It's done incredible things in our world. And I think, if I can be blunt, if you don't have a heart for the church then I doubt your commitment to Christ. I really do. It doesn't have to be this church. And, and I've been to quite a few churches that I don't personally like. Okay? I'm not saying you need to suffer through some of the garbage that a church may throw at you. Find another church, but don't bail on the church. Don't give it up. We need you. And, and I'd be wrong to say that even churches I don't like aren't accomplishing God's will in this world. They are. Now, unfortunately, one of the realities about Maricopa is that people leave. Okay? We've been doing this two years now, and I think we have almost an entirely new group of people who come to church here, which is fine. I, I think we probably had at least 50 people who called Maricopa Springs their home church leave, not because they didn't like our church, but because they didn't like Maricopa. <laughs> um, 
And I just want to take a moment. I don't know where God's going to lead you in the future. I don't know. Maybe it's next week. Maybe it's 20 years from now. But I want you to understand, for those of you who are going to leave Maricopa and ultimately leave Maricopa Springs, it's your responsibility to find a church where you're going to experience God. It's, going to, it's, it's your responsibility. Don't make me come to your house and kick down the door and drag you to your local neighborhood church. Seriously, don't you dare leave the church or leave the city of Maricopa and Maricopa Springs and not put in the hard work necessary to find a church where God's calling you to get involved. Please don't do that. You're missing out on one of the best parts of what it means to follow Christ. Don't grieve me like that. And don't grieve God like that either by hating on his church. Please don't. Find yourself a moderately dysfunctional church because they all are dysfunctional to some degree, except for this one. I'm just kidding. We have our dysfunctions. But find one that's moderately dysfunctional and get plugged in to fellowship with the Father, with other believers, with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what he says. He says, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Find fellowship with John in his faith. Find fellowship with our community and our faith so that you can ultimately find fellowship with God and with his son, Jesus. And fellowship and true community, I believe this with all my heart, can only ever happen at the deepest levels when God is the nucleus of relationships. That's what it takes. That's what it takes in your marriage, in your friendships, even in your relationships with your coworkers, your neighbors, and in this church community. That's what it takes. And I think God is going to accomplish that through his church. I believe that with all my heart. I'm going to have our worship team come back up, and we're going to turn to a time of communion now. And I think it's a perfect transition. It really is. We're going to remember that our joy is complete through fellowship in Christ. And, and I think it fits in perfectly with the church, talking about the church. You don't take communion alone. Maybe you do. I guess if you do, that's kind of weird, I'll be honest. But... I personally have never taken communion alone. It's always something that I do in community. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a church building. I've done it in the middle of nowhere in the woods on Lake Superior after 16 days backpacking. And it was a beautiful experience. But I did it in community with believers. You don't take communion and remember the sacrifice of God alone. Why is that? Because he died for us as individuals, but he died to redeem his people, the church, as well. And we come together in community to remember that sacrifice. If you look through scripture, communion, it's always taken by the church community. And I think it's because the church is the primary vehicle that God uses to reveal his grace to the world. It's true. So in fellowship together, as we worship God through song, we're going to take communion together. We're going to remember the price that was paid to cover our sins, to redeem the church, to give us fullness of life so that our joy may be complete. I'm going to pray for us. Just one quick logistical item. The communion's in the back. The way it works here, if you're joining us for the first time, just grab a chunk of that bread, dip it in the... It's actually grape juice today because you can't buy wine before 11 o'clock on Sundays, and I forgot to do it yesterday. I just killed the mood. But they're both grape juice. Tear off a chunk of that. And, and pretend like nobody else is in this room. Take your time in your seat as we begin to worship. And spend it praising God for what he did. And if you need to take a moment as you stand at that table, don't be shy. 
Don't worry about it. We don't care. Do it. But don't neglect to give God praise for what he did for our salvation. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the price that you paid to redeem your church, to redeem your people. God, it's easy to talk about an empty tomb so that we could be full, but Lord, it does take action on our parts to find joy. And Lord, I pray for those of us in this room this morning who, who are seeking joy, who need a greater portion of joy in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would answer that prayer for us this morning. I pray that you would give us a double portion of your spirit. I pray that you would sanctify this church, that the people in this room would have a deep love for your church. God, I pray that as we come to the communion table, that our hearts would be filled with worship, with gratitude over the blood that was spilled and your body that was crucified for our redemption. We give you praise for that this morning, Lord.